The Word of God tells us how great is the Father's love for us, that He would call us sons and daughters. Just contemplate, just for a moment, the greatness of the Father's love. That He would call us, haters of God, sons and daughters. There is, I believe, a fundamental flaw in most of humanity's thinking when it comes to mankind. Most of the people that you talk to have this idea that most people are generally good people. Most people generally want to do what's right, they want to do what's good. And I believe that that is a fundamental flaw in the understanding of humanity. What is true is that most people are by nature haters of God. We are by nature evil, wicked people. That which, that which compels most of us to live as law-abiding citizens is the fact that we live in a civilized society. That if we steal, we go to jail. If we commit violent crimes, we do that. Uh, we, we will consequently be, be punished by the law or by retribution. But the scripture tells us that we are by nature sinners. We're by nature selfish. We're by nature depraved. And if you have children, you need look no further than your own children to know that, that from the very first opportunity they had, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they disobey, they rebel. It's only through nurture and through love and through compassion that, that we as parents trying to teach them right from wrong and trying to instill in them moral value and try and instill in them ethical behavior because we understand that that is good. But by nature, we are haters of God. By nature, we rebel against the very thing that, that, that God designed us to be, to love Him and to worship Him. In fact, in Romans 1, it says it tells us that, that, that all of humanity is rebelling against God. And the truth is, is that while we are haters of God, while we are enemies of Him, he loves us. He loves us with an unconditional love. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were haters of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, laid down His life for the very ones who were crucifying Oh, how He loves us. I pray that one day I may understand the depth of the love that God has for us. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> no, we're not in Matthew. I know many of your Bibles automatically flopped open to the book of Matthew, and I'm encouraged by that. 
Uh, but we're taking a break this Sunday. We'll be in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at the birth of the church. We're going to be looking at, at how God in His great sovereignty and in His great uh, majesty, how He orchestrated the birth of the church. I was reminded this morning that uh, something that Sam Thomas uh, said, he said, nothing that is under God's control is ever outside of God's control. And so I am thankful this morning that the church is under the control of God. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your great grace and in your great mercy, Lord, you gave us the church. Lord, you understood that life is hard, that we live in a fallen world and temptation and hardships and afflictions and trials come upon us and that we need each other. We need the community of believers. God, may we see your great value. May we see your great grace in the birth of the church. May we be compelled as your church, to fulfill your great commission and to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I pray that as we leave today, as as you go home and as you get in your cars and you go to Piccadilly or wherever else you go for lunch, I pray that that you will see your need for community. Uh, We live in an individualistic society. Uh, I was uh, thinking back over over the last several decades at, at the, the, the major uh, motion pictures that, that kind of shaped our society. Uh, and and you, know, you had things like Indiana Jones, and you had things like Star Wars, and you had things like, uh, like Superman, and, and now there's, there's these uh, superhero movies, Batman and Iron Man, and uh, all of these things. And what is, what is interesting is, is all of those movies are centered around, and, and even if you go back further, if you go back further, uh, you, you look at the Clint Eastwood westerns and John Wayne westerns, and you look at, at, at these great iconic symbols, uh, you look at Casablanca, you look at Humphrey Bogart, you look at, at these icons of American cinema history, and, and it is, a, it is a, a snapshot of the American psyche. And what's interesting is that all of those have either a hero or heroine who who becomes the the be-all, end-all. And and you have Indiana Jones, and he puts on his 
his, his hat and he's got his whip and he goes against the Nazis and, and he destroys every, uh, you know, he thwarts their, their, their evil plan. And then, you know, you have, you have these superheroes and they are, they have these, these, these powers that are ex- extraordinary and they are able to, to go against and they're able to save the world. But it is, it is very much an individualistic ideal. They don't need anyone. They can do it themselves. It is this idea that, that the individual and the individual's ability is highlighted. Well, that is a very new ideal. That is not what we see portrayed in Scripture. In fact, we see the very opposite. We see a need. For others, we see a need for community. And so we're going to look for just a moment at, at how the church was born. Peter, we, we see at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter and all of the rest of the apostles, they're in the upper room, they're praying. Jesus had commanded them, he said, Stay in Jerusalem, wait there for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will give you the, we see in John chapter 14, Jesus telling his disciples uh, that the Father whom, uh, the Father whom, uh, will send the helper, the paraclete, and he will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And we see this in Acts chapter 1. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they're being obedient. They're in Jerusalem. They're waiting. They don't know what's going to happen. They're scared. They know that they've seen Jesus. They know that, 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 that some things have happened. They know that, that, that he has left them, but he's risen from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And they're just not sure what's going to happen. And then Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls. Uh, there's visions of, of tongues as fire. They land upon the disciples. They begin speaking in all these different languages. The proclamation of the gospel goes forth. And this is where we pick up the story. Peter proclaims the gospel, the message of the Christ, the message that the Messiah, whom God had, whom God had promised from ages past, has come. He lived. He died. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was buried. He rose from the grave. And now He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now He commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. That's the message of the Gospel. So Peter proclaims the message of the Gospel. They hear the message of the Gospel. They believe the message of the Gospel. They are baptized. There's an aspect of obedience. There's an aspect of repentance and faith. They're they're baptized. They're born again. And as they are born again, they're born into a community of faith. And this is what we see taking place in Acts chapter 2. Now I want you to pause for just a moment in, in the history of the church. And I want you to think back to your own salvation. Understand that God is a sovereign God, that God created all things according to His purpose and His pleasure, that there's not a tree that falls off of a leaf, uh, that there's not a leaf that falls off of a tree and hits the ground, there's not a raindrop that falls out of the sky without the preordination, the foreordination of God, because God is in control of all things. And nothing that is under His control is ever outside of His control. And we see that in the Old Testament. Even whenever Israel was under captivity and was under exile in Babylon, that there was a God in Babylon. And the God had favor upon the Israelites there in Babylon. We see this in the book of Esther. Whenever Persia was in control, God was still in control. 
and that God had a purpose and had a plan. And so anything and everything that is under God's control is never outside of God's control. And since we understand that everything is under God's control, nothing is outside of God's control. You with me? So your salvation. God brings circumstances into your life, hardships, trials, afflictions. You come to the place in your life where you realize you have a need that is much greater than anything that this world can can fulfill, anything this world can offer. And God brings you to the place where you hear the gospel. Now you may have heard the gospel a hundred times, but you hear the gospel at that moment where you realize your need for salvation and you turn from your sin and you believe. You follow the Lord by obedience and you're born again. At that moment that you're born again, you're born into a community of believers. I want us to look and see what happened to the early church. <clears throat> New birth, rebirth, being born again does not change our circumstances. Wish it did, but it doesn't. Being born again doesn't change your circumstances. You don't, you don't come down uh, the aisle, uh, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, or born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and go home to a house that no longer needs a mortgage payment. It's not how it happens. You don't all of a sudden go to work with a new set of people who no longer are mean to you, or no longer are belittling to you, or you don't go, to the, go back to your classmates who no longer are unkind and no longer hateful. Whenever you become born again, when you become a Christian, all of, you don't all of a sudden get a raise at your office. You know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, your, your 401k begins to make money while everybody else's is losing money. Being born again, being saved, being a part of the family of God doesn't change your circumstances. In fact, the scripture tells us that your circumstances may actually get worse. Go with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. For the early church... This was a very real reality. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, And indeed, all you who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <coughs> what happened in the early church, in the first century, whenever you became a Christian, all of a sudden, your, your livelihood was in jeopardy. People found out that you who were once a Greek or once a Gentile, once worshipped many gods, once participated in temple worship, maybe you were a Jew, maybe you once participated in, in, in the worship in the temple, and now you were meeting together with these, with these Christians, those who belong to the way. All of a sudden, if you owned a business, nobody who was Greek was going to patronize your business. Nobody who was Jewish was going to patronize your business. And so all of a sudden you were going and you were, you were having a good life and you were making a good livelihood. Now you're being boycotted and you're no longer able to sell the goods that you once sold. You have to close your business. Sometimes being born again does not make your circumstances better, but negatively affects your circumstances. Look at the text, Acts chapter 2. When they were born again, when the church 
saw their need for a Savior, when the 3,000 souls saw Jesus as the Messiah and repented from their sin and cried out for salvation, verse 45 tells us that they still had need. Look at verse 45. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They had needs. And being saved, being born again, didn't change their circumstances. But what it did, it changed their context. Rebirth, born again, coming into a community of believers, being saved by the grace of God doesn't change your circumstances. You still have a mortgage to pay. You still have kids that, that, that need braces. You still have an elderly mother that, that, that needs to be cared for. You still have family members that are addicted to drugs and alcohol. It doesn't change your circumstances, but what it does is it changes your context. All of a sudden, you are now in a community of believers who are designed by the grace of God to help in the midst of those circumstances. And that's exactly what we see taking place in Acts chapter 2. They still had need. In fact, their needs may have increased because they may have lost their source of livelihood. Maybe there were those who were saved who were participating and temple worship of pagan gods. Maybe they were making their their livelihood by by selling meat that had been sacrificed to idols, as we'll see in in, uh, 1 Corinthians. And and, and many of them may have lost their jobs when they came to Christ, and they said, I have an allegiance, and my allegiance is to Jesus and Him alone. I can no longer participate in this job. I can no longer participate in, in this type of behavior. And so maybe their needs increased. But what happened was the context of their lives changed with their new birth. Being born again doesn't change our circumstances. It changes our context. Our needs, our hurts, our burdens are now shared with family. When my dad was sick, uh, it, it was obviously a burden on uh, friends, family, uh, but there was a responsibility that that my mom, my brother, and my sister had taking care of my dad while he was sick that was different than the responsibility that all of our loved ones, all of our friends, and all of our extended family had. Sure, they came and they helped when they could. They brought meals, and by the grace of God, we are we are unbelievably grateful for that but as a family there was a greater responsibility that i felt that my brother felt that my mom felt that my sister felt for taking care of my dad why because we're family right because we were his children she was his spouse and and as he was in the hospital we were the ones that spent the night in the hospital we were the ones that 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 stayed up with him all night and while we had friends that we could call and loved ones that we could call that would come and sit while you know, we ran to go uh, get a haircut or while we ran to go to the grocery store, uh, it, was, it was my brother and my mom and my sister and myself that spent the night in the hospital, that, that stayed overnight, that carried the weight of the burden. I want us to listen to the gospel. I want us to listen to the message of the gospel in Galatians chapter 6. This is Paul as he speaks to the church in Galatia. The church is in 
the region of Galatia. He says this in verse 1. He said, Brethren, if any man is called in trespass, you are spiritual, restore such a one. For in the spirit of gentleness, each one of you look into yourself, lest you to be tempted. Look at verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. There are those who are born again, whose families will say, especially in other cultures, will say, because you've pledged your allegiance to Jesus, you are no longer a part of this family. Those in a Muslim culture, to give yourself to Christ and to pledge your obedience to Christ is to, disown, is to be disowned by your family. There are many of us who live miles and miles away from family. And life is hard. Just by a show of hands, within the last 12 months, just by a show of hands, how many of you within this congregation have either lost loved ones, lost jobs, been stretched financially because of extenuating circumstances, gone through uh, difficulty with, with illnesses? Just, just by a show of hands, how many within this congregation can say, you know, we've had a very difficult circumstances uh, or difficult thing happen in our life over the last 12 months. Just, just, just by a show of hands. Look around. Keep, keep, keep your hands up. Or you can put your hands down. Is it, is it a accurate statement to say that life, because of the fallen nature of the world that we live in, that life is hard? Life is difficult. When you have a loved one that passes away, whenever you have an elderly parent who no longer can, can live by themselves and, and they need extra care, when you lose a source of income, when you have a spouse that has to have surgery, when you have children and grandchildren who are struggling with Addiction. When you have the fallen nature of this world hit you square in the eyes, life is hard. But the good news is, guys, life was never intended to be lived alone. When we're born again, we're born into a family. Just like in our normal, natural lives. When we're born, no one is born in a vacuum. You're never born apart from a mom and a dad. The way that, that biology works, and uh, little kids, you can ask mom and dad about this on the way home, and they'll be glad to tell you all about it. The way that, the way that biology works is that, is that when a baby comes into the world, it comes into the world with a mom and a dad. And they come into the world, we're born into the world with a family. And we're born into the world. We're born with moms and dads and cousins and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And whenever life happens, those cousins, those aunts, those uncles, those moms, those dads, those grandmas and grandpas, they're there for us. 
That's the, that's the, the way that God designed the family. But within the spiritual realm... It's the exact same principle. We are born again and we're born into a family. We are born into the body of Christ. How does God in His Word describe the church? He describes it as the family of God. He describes us as as members of a body. He describes us as, as bricks of a building. It is a small part of a greater of a greater piece of a greater entity. And so, when we're born again, we're born into a family. Why? Because we were created for relationships. Go with me if you will to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Book of Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> if you'll give me just a a a brief moment where I can expound Genesis chapter 2. We see God creating the world. He creates the world, the scripture tells us, in six days He creates, on the seventh day He rests. And Genesis chapter 2 is kind of a a, a expounding upon Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 kind of tells us the nuts and the bolts. On the first day He did this, second day He did this, third day He did this. On Genesis chapter 2 kind of gives us an explanation or an expounding upon what God did in these moments of creation. And I want us to look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I want us to understand that God created, and he created in a sinless environment. Sin does not enter the world. Sin does not enter creation until Genesis chapter 3. And after everything that God created, God created the light, God created the heavens, God created the earth, God created everything, he said it is good. After everything that God did, He said it is good. This is the very first time in all of creation God said that it is not good. And what did He say it is not good? He said it's not good for man to be alone. We were never created for isolation. We were never created to be alone. We were created by His purpose and by His design to be relational. The Godhead Himself, God Himself is a relational God. He was created, and from, from eternity past to eternity future, the Godhead has, all exi- has always existed in plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and they were in perfect union and perfect relationship with each other. And they will always be in perfect union, perfect relationship with each other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God is a relational God. And in a similar fashion, He said, let us make man in our image. How? One of those images, one of those things is relational that He designed us to be relational. Whenever man was alone in the garden and there were all these animals, they said, He said, God said for the very first time, it's not good for man to be alone. And therefore, God created woman. We were created to enjoy first and foremost relationship with God and secondly, relationship with others. So how does this look in the early church? Well, I'm going to give you just just a couple brief snapshots. Acts chapter 16. Paul goes to the church or goes to a city called Philippi. He asks around, he says, Hey, where do all the Jews meet? Because it was Paul's custom to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He said, Where do all the Jews meet? He said, Well, there's not a whole lot of them here, but they meet outside the city at this little place and they meet 
the first uh, that they meet on the Sabbath day and they pray. So Paul makes his way out outside the city and he finds a group of women and he begins to share with them the good news of the gospel and they believe. And then this woman named Lydia, she says, Paul, come, come into my house, teach my family what you've just taught me about the Messiah. And what we see happen is the body of Christ, the church at Philippi is born. Where? In the house of Lydia. Paul then goes to Macedonia, to a city of Thessalonica. Goes to the temple, begins to preach the gospel. Goes to the Jewish temple, begins to preach the gospel. Tell them how Jesus is the Messiah, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture. And there are some there who believe. And then they're kicked out of the temple. And then a man named Jason comes to Paul and says, hey, come to my house. Come teach these things to my family. And the church at Thessalonica is born. Where? In the house of Jason. And then we see Priscilla and Aquila hear the message of the gospel. And Antioch. And they come and they believe. And they encourage Paul. They say, come to my house. Teach my family these things. The church at Antioch is born. Where? In the house of Priscilla and Aquila. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that what happened there in Jerusalem, that the people of God, the people who were saved, who were born again, that they began meeting where? In the homes. And they were devoting themselves to the teachings of the apostles, to prayer, to the Lord's Supper, to the breaking of bread. And the scripture also tells us that they were eating meals together. And that they were spending time together. They were fellowshipping together. Now I want us to understand that in the New Testament that there are descriptive passages and there are prescriptive passages. There are passages that describe what happened and there are passages that, that tell us what ought to happen. The book of Acts is a descriptive book. It tells us what happened. It's a history. And so, so we must be careful not to, not to say everything in the book of Acts that, that, that we need to do X, Y, and Z, and if we do X, Y, and Z, then, then, then this will happen because that's the way it happened in the book of Acts. That's not the case. The book of Acts is a descriptive, it's a book of history. But we can extract principles. What were those principles? That the church of God loved one another. They loved one another, they saw the needs, and they met those needs. The circumstances didn't change. The context did. All of a sudden, they were going through these afflictions and these hardships and these trials in the midst of a family. And they met together. And they shared meals together. And they prayed together. And they studied together. And whenever somebody lost their job and they had a financial obligation, the body of Christ said, you know what? I bet if, if we asked the church... We could meet that need. And all of a sudden, whenever, whenever they had hardships and affliction and illness that would strike the body of Christ, the family was there. Life's not fair. Whenever my children were growing up and are growing up, I hear this at least a dozen times a day. That's not fair. It's not fair that Daniel gets to do this. It's not fair that Anna gets to do this. It's not fair that Nicholas gets to do this. And so what's dad's response? 
Life's not fair. Life's not fair. And many of you this morning understand that life's not fair. Many of you this morning have experienced hardship, afflictions, trials. The loss of a loved one to cancer long before their time was up. Being passed over for promotion because someone else met some certain demographic needs that the company had rather than qualifications. Life's not fair. But because life's not fair, because we live in a fallen world, God gives us a community to help us during these times of affliction. And I pray as we talk about over the next uh, next few moments, uh, we're going to talk about life groups. This is an opportunity, this is a tool that I believe that the Lord will use to help Redeemer be the church. Well, this morning there may be someone here who knows that life isn't fair and they realize their need for community. But before you can become a part of the body of Christ, you must first realize your need for a Savior. The church cannot save you from sin. The church cannot pay the debt of sin that you owe. The Scripture tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And while the church is God's designed means and method of the Great Commission, it is Jesus who is God's design and means for salvation. Becoming a member of the church doesn't save you from hell. Trusting in Jesus and Him alone is the only thing that saves us from an eternity in a Christless hell. Let's pray. God, there are those here this morning who need to trust Jesus. They need to be born again. They need to be redeemed and saved. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. To turn from your sin and trust and rest solely in Jesus and in His name, in His death, His burial, His resurrection. If that's you, I want to invite you to come. Maybe there are those here this morning who are feeling the Holy Spirit drawing them to be a part, to be a member here at Redeemer. If that's you, I'll invite you to come. Maybe there's someone here this morning who's going through a difficult time and you simply need the church to wrap your arm, to wrap their arms around you and pray for you. 
whatever it is the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart this morning, would you come? Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to have his freedom in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.